1: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. What a great story this guy has. Grant Hill, Hall of Fame basketball player. You know, I'm not really up on sports, but I do like to understand what makes someone the best in the world at something and i was really impressed when i read grant's book it's called game and i was really impressed talking with him i'm sure you will be as well so here we go my daughter wanted me to tell you that she goes to duke
2: oh very cool very cool how what year
1: is she uh, at duke uh this is her freshman year oh good okay
2: good good
1: yeah. against my wishes i might add I I I sort of feel like kids these days shouldn't go to college. Like I think student student tuitions are too high, and and they're not quite learning as much as they should be for for that kind of price.
2: Well, I know about uh, people such as yourself. Uh, you sound like my oldest daughter, who uh, questions uh, the validity at times uh, and the importance and significance. But I, anyway, nevertheless, I'm glad your daughter's. There. I'm a, I'm a trustee. I'm on the board at Duke. So okay. Of course, I have to advocate for higher ed, but but I understand where you're coming from.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. As a kid, I spent summers at Duke. They had like a summer program for high school kids where you could learn stuff. And I always thought it was like a a beautiful campus. And I agree with you. Education is great, but I just wonder if, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a scam the way they keep raising these tuitions faster than inflation, because they know people will pay it. Because people think, oh, I won't get a job unless I go to you know, a good school and stuff. I know this is, we're not talking about basketball. This is just conversation. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'll just say this. I think the point
2: that you brought up or the feeling you have about higher ed, I think there are a lot of people who have that same sentiment. And I know that's one of the, one of many issues, I think, that's facing higher education across the board is some of the things you just brought up. So I'm aware of, of that line of thinking. And something that we collectively have to figure out how to resolve and hopefully change that.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's probably possible solutions. But anyway, Grant Hill, basketball all of Hall of Famer. You were just getting instituted into the Hall of Fame, I guess, when you finished writing this book, Game. I'm just curious, why did you feel you wanted to write the book? I mean, there's a lot of reasons to write a book and I'm just curious why you wanted to write a book.
2: That's a great question. I think the process of being enshrined to Hall of Fame I think really prompted me to do this and to take this journey. I mean, I've you know been a public figure, I guess, I guess most, or if not my entire adult life, but, you know, to to put things out there, to be vulnerable, that was not something that uh, I'd say five, 10 years ago was, was something I was interested in doing. Obviously you do interviews and magazine stories and things of that nature, but to really speak from the heart and share uh, about, you know, your life, your, Vulnerabilities, your your insecurities. You know, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. But I I do think that the process of being announced and the lead up to the Hall of Fame enshrinement, I think that naturally puts you in a very reflective mode or state of mind. And you look back and you kind of like, you know, that's like the, the icing on the cake, the Hall of Fame. And you look back on your career. Uh, And you just appreciate things and you see things for, you know, I'm the type that I think didn't necessarily like to look back. You know, I always wanted to feel that my best was yet to come. My best years were in front of me. Uh, There's new challenges, new goals, new, new horizons, if you will. So I oftentimes was sort of proud of this idea that you would never know, there was never evidence in my home or homes that I lived in throughout my career and throughout my life, there was never any evidence that an NBA athlete lived there, other than the fact of the size of my shoes and my clothes.
1: And the full-size basketball court in the
2: backyard. (laughs) Well, no, I wish I, as a kid, I wish I had, I mean, I, I have a goal now because of my kids, but, you know, I never put up memorabilia. I never posted photos. I never did any of that. And I thought in part, it just, you know, it kept you soft. You know, I wanted to keep Achieving, keep going, and, and even in life after basketball. And so I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing or necessarily healthy, but um, I think to be able to look back and reflect and really kind of like celebrate some of the successes uh, and also maybe live a little bit more with some of the hurt and heartache, uh, I think the exercise of doing that uh, was really helpful for me and made me appreciate the ups and the downs uh, of my career and my life.
1: Were were you afraid when you were younger that if you celebrated too early that it might ruin the future? Like if you if you thought too early like, "Oh, I'm I I had the best season ever. This is great. I'm going to finally be I I'm finally where I want to be as as an athlete and a basketball player and so on." Did you ever think that that looking back even positively would kind of jinx the future a little bit? You
2: know, I don't know if it was so much jinxing. I just, I think I was so goal oriented and things that I wanted to accomplish. And, um, you know, I I never, like, I didn't have a shrine to myself, you know, And, and so maybe subconsciously that was there. I mean, maybe subconsciously I didn't, I mean, I was joking when I say I don't want to get soft, but I wanted to keep pursuing. You know, I wanted to keep going. I wanted to keep achieving. And even in retirement, I mean, you know, my career had an interesting trajectory with the injuries and coming back. But even in retirement, it was like, okay, what's next? What's the next challenge? What's the next hurdle? What's the next uh, goal to try to meet? And I think that's sort of an athletic mindset in a lot of ways. Uh, But I also don't think it was necessarily healthy because you don't, Take the time, I think, to smell the roses and be appreciative while you're going through it. And I don't know if I allowed myself to do that. And I didn't get a full appreciation for it while it was happening. And in some respects, I wasn't really happy because I hadn't attained the goals that I set out to do. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I think I was able to go back and really live in these spaces, in these moments, and really try to, okay, what was happening? What was I thinking? What was going through my life? You know, how do I see it now as someone who's middle-aged and has life and perspective and, you know, just a different, you know, a different vantage point on various things that happened throughout my life and career? So, you know, if I could go back, I would probably not necessarily display things in my house, but just enjoy the journey a little bit more than, uh, having to go back many years later and enjoy it then
1: I mean, this is this is very interesting. like you're you're a young man a few years younger than me, I might add. And uh, I always wonder with myself that I was always so goal oriented that you know, you only have one life and you only have one life to appreciate. And if you don't start appreciating it until too late, it um it could. It could be disappointing. It could be hard. Like if you're always kind of, you know, you mentioned in the middle of the book, Quinn Snyder gives you advice. You should be attacking uh, instead of reacting. And I think that applies a lot to life. Like we're always just reacting to the latest event instead of being uniquely you and moving forward the way you can and, and appreciating the whole life around you as opposed to just reacting to what the latest event is, whether it's an injury or the next game coming up or a relationship or whatever. And I wonder if it benefits when you're younger to just react to things so that you, you, you face them full on instead of, you know, stopping to smell the roses.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think you're onto something. And I, and I think I realized that through this process, I mean, you know, life is going to have peaks and valleys. You're going to have ups and downs. And, um, You know, as it related to my career, that was certainly the case. And, you know, I think one of the things, and I talked about it in the book, and you know, Coach K used to talk about this when we were on the court, and just the idea of this, this, the idea of next play. And regardless of what just occurred or what just happened, you know, stay in the moment, you know, move on to the next play. Prepare for the next play. That allows you to stay present, allows you to stay in the moment, and allows you to be at your best. And I think I kind of lived that way. <laughs> you know, I lived like it was this next play. It was next. And so I never really got tied up or emotionally wrapped up in whatever good or bad happened. And in some ways, that may have helped me going through some really tough times with my injury, facing some, some you know, some, some difficult moments. I never really allowed myself to feel what that was like. And I just kept pushing forward next play. And I think in some ways it may have helped me, you know, get through it and come back and resume my career. I'll be honest. I think as I was preparing for the Hall of Fame, I got into a little bit of a dark place because now I'm feeling those moments. Um, Here's an exciting um, and I didn't put this in the book, but here's here's an exciting moment that sort of validates your career, even though your career. Uh, had some tremendous setbacks and hurdles. And what I started thinking is, well, man, if I got, if I received this accomplishment for essentially a half a career, what could have happened if I had the whole career and I didn't have the injury setbacks? And I kind of started to get bitter. And I think that led to me peeking back and looking back and, and starting to reflect more, which that's obviously a moment to reflect. And so, you know, I I had to kind of live through that and work through some of those feelings and emotions uh, during that time and also during this process of, of writing this book.
1: And look, I'm sure as you start promoting this book, you're going to be dealing with this a lot because your career is defined in many ways by, you know, how many points you scored, how many awards you won, how many games you won and on and on. But there's also the other side for you in particular. And you just said the words, even though you had these injuries that collapsed part of your career. And like, I was just watching a video of other NBA players talking about you saying how, you know, many said you were, you're the greatest of all time. You're the best. You're the best. Some would say you would have been the best if not for the injuries. How does that, I mean, obviously that's not the most, nobody celebrates hearing that, but what do you think specifically? Well, I, I think, you know,
2: through the process of writing this book uh, and then even just, I guess, reflecting on the process of writing the book, that makes sense. Um, you know, you, you you come to realize and accept that, hey, like I was on an incredible trajectory early in my career and that got derailed and it almost ended and ruined my career. And um, I was able to, to fight through that. And return and play and have great fulfillment and enjoyment from those years. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes as you as you go back and you walk the reader or you go through and prepare yourself to to write about what happened, um, you're back in those moments. You're back in those moments, and you're trying to remember things and and uh, conversations. You know, reactions to what a doctor might've said, or a medical profession, or the feeling after a game where you knew, okay, the ankle was not holding up and another surgery was on the horizon. Um, and, and and so, you know, you you have, pers- you allow yourself to feel. I mean, I, I guess that's what I said. I don't know if I, felt, I was, you know, I talked about this with my wife who was right there kind of with me when we went through all of that. And I, I shared some of this with her in, in you know, in the process of writing the book. And she said, you know, I, I didn't think you were human. Like, you just kept going. It was like, okay, this, all right, what's next? Okay, I got to do this. I got to eat. I got to work out. Like, it was just, you just keep going. And and maybe that's a survival technique. Uh, maybe, like I said, that's the athletic or athlete's mindset. Maybe that's how we're conditioned in our society. You just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, but that's what I did. And um, and I didn't really understand or allow myself to maybe feel um, what that was. And if I did feel it, maybe I wouldn't have come back. You know, I don't know. But, uh, but- I, I certainly learned about myself and learned about that part, the, the bad and the good. Like, I look back like, yeah, you know, I was actually pretty, pretty good. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, 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 I didn't necessarily see it that way because I kept, I wasn't where I wanted to be and um and so learning to enjoy the journey i think was one of the lessons i took from the process of writing the book
1: yeah so there's a a couple of things to unpack there one is you know do, while these injuries were happening or or even afterwards when you went back to the game but you weren't necessarily scoring the same points per game which could be a factor of age could be a factor of the surgeries the recovery who knows but what struck me was you were talking to your wife about it. You wouldn't have had those conversations with your wife without those injuries. You know, our, our existence as humans is, involves family and our relationships with a with wife and, and, and our spouse. And many people, I think, who have just a straight line upwards, if such a thing is possible, maybe don't get the benefit of having those types of conversations with their spouse. So maybe there was benefit.
2: The conversations with my wife though, weren't in real time. Like we didn't talk about, I wasn't vulnerable with her. I wasn't having, um, you know, in in, in the moment, particularly with the injuries, you know, that was, you know, after the fact, that was 20 years later, almost 20 years later, as I'm going through one, I guess the enshrinement process. And then two, as I'm writing this book and telling telling my story. Um, But yeah, I mean, having a support system, having family, having friends. Uh, the one thing I've, I've appreciated and, um, you know, I had a unique perspective because my dad was a professional athlete. So I heard good and bad of, of being a professional athlete, uh, whether he experienced it or his contemporaries. But, you know, I'm very grateful that I've had people in my life who were going to tell me what I need to hear as opposed to what I want to hear. and. You know, I, I've said many times before that the mix of of youth, fame, and a lot of money is very, very dangerous, and it's dangerous for that person going through it, but also can be for those that are around that person. And so, uh, whether it was my wife, my parents, you know, my my support structure—I mean, I've always had people who, you know, who who told me when I'm wrong, you know, and have held me accountable when I need to be held accountable, and
1: like what was an instance? What was a specific instance where the gap between what you needed to hear and what you wanted to hear were, were really great?
2: (laughs) Uh, I I think it's probably daily in my house, uh, household (laughs) right now.
1: That's, that's Um, normal. But what, but like, you know, when it, when it's like a come to Jesus moment for you, when, when was that?
2: You know, I mean, I think, I think one thing with my parents and I'm, I'm so fortunate and, and, and blessed, um, you know, just I, I think my parents, I think, you know, look, most people think their parents are incredible and they are. I mean, parents who are engaged and involved in, in, in their children's lives, uh, I think, are heroes and, and are angels on Earth, as I say. Um, but, you know, my parents up until COVID worked, you know, they, they, they never asked me for money. If anything, you know, I go back and see my parents. They still give me cash. You know, and
1: uh, Uh, here's here's 20 bucks. Buy some ice cream, son. Yeah, yeah, well, you know,
2: a little bit more than that. My mom, (laughs) you know, she likes to go into the bank to to retrieve cash. i like to go to the ATM. So it just shows you the generational change. So she gets the big bills, the 100s. I only get the twenties. So (laughs) um, a lot of times when I have a couple of hundred dollar bills in my pocket, I think my wife knows that I must have seen my mom recently. But you know,
1: I, I, I don't know if I can give you concrete examples. Um, like particularly when you were thinking of how is your career gonna restart after these surgeries? Should it restart because there was risk involved? Like you said, your wife thought you were a Superman because you were continuing to do these things, but you felt this, this need to keep going back. There were there was things to accomplish. Did anyone say, look, Grant, you've made the money, Play, you know, maybe you could be a coach or an owner, which you now are like, look at, start looking at this. Did anyone say that? Like, don't go back.
2: No, no, no one said that. Um, at least no one in my inner circle. Uh, I think my parents, because of their relationship to sport, you know, my dad was, a, was in the NFL yeah. 12 years, worked for 30, almost 40 years in uh, management for professional sports franchises with the Cleveland Browns, the Baltimore Orioles, and the Dallas Cowboys. And then my mom, who, you know, has a unique perspective of being the the wife of a professional athlete and the mother of a professional athlete. You know, you know, I think we all, or they all knew that there's a, you know, there's there's a short window of opportunity. And to get to that level, there's an incredible sacrifice there's a passion. Um, I think what kind of kept me going was that, I don't know if I could have lived with myself if I didn't try and I didn't exhaust every avenue to come back and play. And my wife is a singer and I think she understands that passion and that commitment and that drive necessary. So no one ever was like, no, I had people, you know, different teams and you know, I know the magic at different times. Well, oh, well, maybe you should think about something else. And and I'm sure there were whispers out there and people in the media. But uh, in my inner circle, no. I think they understood what the sport and what the game meant to me. Uh, I think we were all feet. We were all very fearful when I had the staph infection, the septic, and and that whole ordeal. Um, but you know, we we always felt that there was hope and there was a chance to come back. And thankfully I did. I came back and played nine more years without any issues related to that ankle.
1: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When you first started out, like you said, you said, you know, you've, you've had fame surrounding you almost your entire adult life. But it's actually been even longer than that because when you were in high school, people knew... you were you were getting recruitment letters all over the place you were like you were clearly gonna destined for greatness when did you first start realizing and, and you're very humble about it in the book and i can see you're a very humble genuine person when did you first start really thinking hey i've got something here it's not just a local thing it's it's a worldwide thing
2: well, I, I think the worldwide thing probably happened in the NBA uh, as the game was becoming a, a global
1: game. But I mean, uh, like even in college, though, you were like right, right. you were like the best college player ever, practically. Or, well, well or I mean, I mean, I was,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean I, look, I was going to say on the on the NBA front, you know, because of my marketing relationships, I would take international trips, and that's when it dawned on me, like, wow, people in you know in Paris, people in you know, in Taipei, Taiwan or Manila of uh, the Philippines or, you know, Hong Kong. Like they, you know, I used to, used to, we used to go to Asia every summer for an Asia tour. And I used to joke that it was like my, my Michael Jackson moment. Like, I mean, literally people would be screaming for me and, you know, and, and thousands of people would be waiting outside my hotel room. And it was just like totally crazy. And there was such a, they were starving for the NBA, and I—I I think, along with Michael Jordan, we were one of the first, you know, NBA guys back in the mid '90s to go over there uh, as the game was growing. And so, so on a global stage, that was my moment. But I, I think in high school, you're right. I played varsity. I, you know, I'd say it was sort of a—you know—each level, the magnitude intensified. And so in high school. You know early on you you show promise you're a freshman you know you're playing varsity and then all of a sudden you start to to sort of showcase your talents and rec- and get that recognition on a national scene for your age uh you go to camps you go to AAU so it, it starts to build and bubble a bit um but there's still an innocence back then I mean high school sports in the mid to late 80s was very different than it is now I mean he's these high school basketball players are like celebrities, you know, and, and they have millions of followers on social media platforms. So it was a little bit different back then, but then you get to college, and now you're at a high profile program, and we're winning, and we're we're playing in championships, and so the stakes are higher. And you realize now, like okay, like we go to different campuses, we go to part like people know who you are, people see you on TV, the power of television. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, the, the and I don't have the exact number and I, and I think I put it in the book, but you know, of the four years, the four years I was in school, if there were 120 games, I think there were more, but there were 120 games that I played during my four years, I think 117 of them are on national television. Mm-hmm. You can't pay for that kind of exposure, you know, and, and. And that actually, I think, helped me as I went into the NBA with that kind of momentum and that kind of, I guess, brand relevance, if you want to call it that, uh, as you're enter- entering the NBA. So each step of the each each level you you jump to, I think the, the intensity increased. And you could feel it. But it started in high school. It started in high school. Um, the only thing that was different was in high school, you kind of went to school with kids you grew up with. I mean, these were kids you went to elementary school with. And so you've known these, you know, you, you've known everyone since, you know, since long before you showed promise on the basketball court. So there was still an innocence and still a level of normalcy associated with that. But certainly the stakes got higher when I went to Duke.
1: Well, what, what about in terms of your, of the talent? So at what point did you start to realize, oh, I'm better than most? At what point did it require, you know, talent gets you so far, right? And that's when you start to realize that you love this and you have this ability to get good at it. At what point, what separated you out from the other talented players, whether it was in high school, college, the NBA, what were the specific things you did to kind of pull yourself out? And, and mind you, I've asked other people who are like, let's say world-class at you know, some field or sport or game or whatever. And sometimes I get the response, I was always better than everybody. (laughs) And so nothing separated me out. But like, how would you answer that? Great question. I think
2: to offer some context, I first fell in love with, like really fell in love with basketball watching the 1982 Final Four when Mike Michael, he was then Mike Jordan, uh, a freshman at North Carolina. He hit the game-winning jump shot against Georgetown uh, after that jump shot, he became Michael Jordan. Um, but that was when I fell in love with the game and everything I did in that moment, like I was passionate. It's all I thought about. That's all I did. I'm an only child of two only children. Uh, so I, you know, I don't have a big family, uh, somewhat sheltered, uh, growing up wasn't really allowed to do a whole lot. Um, so me and a basketball, like that was my best friend and whether that was outdoors in the driveway, on the street, at the blacktop, at a friend's basketball goal, in the neighborhood, in my mom's kitchen, in the basement. Like, I mean, I was always with a ball, always dribbling, always imagining there's a hoop there. Um, and so watching tape, watching games, we, we had a Betamax. You know, so all of this, you're absorbing, you're, you're putting the time in. And, you know, I, I do think I had talent. I think I was always pretty good, but I also think I always put the time in. Like, I, you know, I, I think as I went into middle school, I played AAU basketball, um, and we won the national championship between my eighth and ninth grade year. And I think now all of a sudden playing against the best players your age from all over the country And kind of looking around and like, oh man, I'm just as good as these guys. Like, that was a huge confidence boost. It's one thing when you're in your own bubble, in your own neighborhood, you know, you're in your own community, but now to go against the so called best uh, in the country, I think that's when I realized, okay, you know what, I, I have a chance here. Like, and all that did, I think, was just increase the intensity. And where a lot of my friends, you know, I mean they love the game, but they you know they were into other things and might socialize and go out and do all you know, like I was focused. Like I and not that I was thinking about the NBA necessarily, um, maybe more thinking about playing in college, but like I just I found my passion and this is what I loved to do. And that's kind of all I did, you know. I mean that was what consumed me during those formative years. Do you
1: think do you think that kind of obsessiveness, that consuming that's a requirement for the fulfillment of talent.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know. Was it Malcolm Gladwell has the book, and he, you know, one of his books, I um, can't remember which one it was, but just. Uh, I think Outliers. Outlier, yeah, and talked about the ten thousand hours. And yeah, you know, I, I do think that there's not that I'm here to plug anyone else's book, and he certainly doesn't need my plug, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think we look at people and we say talent, but we say natural talent, and um, but we don't always point to or appreciate the amount of time that went into cultivating that gift. Look, I, I'm 6'8. You know, I, I I received some some great, you know, things from my parents, genetics. You know, my dad, you know, the joke in my house, my dad's 6'4 and you know, was an incredible athlete. And my mom is a self, you know, self-professed non-athlete. She likes, she's proud of the fact that at Wellesley, she opted out of physical, physical education to take physics. So, you know, she'll tell you she, she can't walk and chew gum at the same time. So my dad would often say, man, you only have half my chromosomes. You'd actually be a pretty good athlete if you had the other half too. Um, but I, um, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you're given certain gifts, but the feel and the things about the skill and the natural... Like no, there's there's like it's it's hours and hours and hours of work. It's a considerable amount of time being by yourself and working on your game, your imagination. Um, you know, I, I would go out with a basketball and just dribble like for hours, mm-hmm. and it might not be doing drills, but just walking down the street, dribbling through my legs. You know, going to the, you know, to the 7-Eleven and dri- like always having a ball in your hands. And to me, it was like your safe place. And yes, I was obsessive, but I didn't look at it that way at the time. I didn't think it was unusual. I think looking back at it now, might have been slightly unusual.
1: I don't think it's a you bad know? thing, by the way. I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think that's how you do get beyond, like you, you mentioned at the high school, at the middle school, championships, you were looking around like, oh, I'm as good as these people. But then the question is, how do you get better? Because not all of them made it to the NBA and then made it to the Hall of Fame. So you had to, you had to pull ahead somehow.
2: Well, some of them did make it to the NBA. Some of them actually, Chris Webber made it to the Hall of Fame. Huh. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, I think there's a lot that goes into why someone is able to separate themselves from the pack. Could be Environment could be just focus and dedication. Sometimes look, having success too soon can be dangerous. You know, you lose that edge, that that fire. You know, I, I can't speak for others, but as I said, going through that experience, we were in St. Louis uh for the 13 and under uh national championships. Coming away from that, like the fire was even greater. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was, it was even more magnified. And, um, and so look, I had balance in my life. I had friends. I had, I had a girlfriend. Like, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't completely obsessed where there was nothing else, uh, left in my life to do than just play basketball. But I put a lot into that and I enjoyed. you know, as an only child, you, I think you're, you, you grow accustomed to, to entertaining yourself. And a lot of that was basketball. A lot of it was, either watching it and I'm talking, when I watch it, I'm talking like rewinding, like back and forth, rewinding a play. Okay, what happened, like watching it like a coach when I'm 13 years old. And and so I think that helps you absorb and maybe see things and develop your feel uh, for the game. But then also going out with, you know, like you said, by yourself dribbling, you know, having a wall, pretending to wall, like there's a great story and I think I put it in the book, My dad um, went to Yale and we were up on Yale's campus in the early eighties. And my mom's business partner for 30 years, his children went to Yale. So we would go up to the Yale Harvard game every other year and we'd visit with them in their dorm. And one time I'm outside in the courtyard. I don't have a basketball, there's not a hoop. And I'm, I'm out there sweating for like 90 minutes pretending I'm playing basketball Mm -hmm. and uh and so I don't want to you know engage with a bunch of college students and talk about Chaucer and things of that nature I'm you know 11 12 years old I'm outside like that's what I'm talking about like that's where your imagination sometimes you know you use that to entertain yourself as it related to the sport and something you love and that's You know, I'm almost embarrassed to share that, but that's kind of like, that was who I was. Like, that's what I enjoy. I could go out with nothing and imagine that I'm working on my
1: game. And so, you know, you mentioned the watching and rewinding of tapes, so you're watching other players, other plays, other games, and so on. How important, and this is a weird question, but how important is the role of memory in getting good, you know, either way you got good? Uh, Like, you know, you obviously have to remember Like certain plays that you've seen, and like, oh, now I'm in a situation that was like this situation I saw ten years ago on a tape somewhere. Like, how how often does that? How how much does that contribute to eventual greatness?
2: You know, that's a great question, and I, I don't know the answer, but I can I can say this. I mean, there there are certain players, and I'm sure this applies in all sports, but as it relates to basketball, there's certain guys. And look, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm probably patting myself on the back and saying this, but I felt like I fell into this category. There's certain people who just have a, a great feel for the game. And the question is, by the time you get to the NBA, can you teach feel? Is it something natural? Is it something that, you know, I I, I have, I'll, I'll, I won't mention names, but I've had kids I grew up with, who I played with, who um, we had the same, same love and passion. I might've put more hours in, who knows, but they didn't have that feel. And how does one develop that feel? And I don't know, like I don't have the answer, but I do think watching film, I do think how you process information. You know, when you go watch a game in person, when you go to the park, as a 10-year-old, and you're watching the adults play, what are you watching? What are you keying in on? You know, you're just watching the ball. Are you watching off? Like, all these things. Like, I would go as a kid and watch the older kids play, and I'm watching everything. I'm watching the guy boxing out, someone on the weak side. Like, and I, and I guess subconsciously I'm doing this because I loved it, and I wanted to try to learn. It, it consumed me. So I wanted to try to, like, understand it. It's like a puzzle. You want to try to, like... You want to figure it out. Like, I love music. I play the piano a little bit. Uh, my wife is a singer, recording artist. I live vicariously through her as a musician. But when I listen to a song, I'm, I'm listening, and maybe this is the musician or the wannabe musician in me, but I'm listening to everything about the song that makes it great. So, like, what's the drum pattern? What's the line doing? How does the piano... Complement the baseline. What are the strings doing? Like I'm listening to all of that, and maybe that's just how I'm like wired. Like I'm like okay, trying to understand what makes this a great song, and then the lyrics. What are they saying in the lyric? What is the melody of the sing? Like all of that. It's it's like it's like cooking, you know? It's like you got all these ingredients, so you got to put it all together and make it work. And so I do think there's a little bit of that, and maybe I'm a little wired like that, and that's how I approached sort of at a young age watching the game it's not just watching the ball it's watching everything and i don't i don't know if that makes sense
1: but no it it totally makes sense and i wonder if it if it starts to change now like so you're you know a part owner of the atlanta hawks congratulations it's, it's a, i recently moved to atlanta so i guess that's my team even though i've never been to a basketball game in my life well, <laughs> we have to change that.
2: We have to, we, You next season, you're my guest. All continue. right,
1: excellent. Uh, i would be honored. And, um, you know, I'm wondering now, you you know, you're we're seeing like a money ball-like approach that's starting to hit basketball, where data is showing you things that may be unobvious to look for, like the degree of the arc of the throw, or, you know, whether three-pointers are more important than other kinds of throws. How does this change your view of basketball?
2: No, I mean, I think that the data and the collection of data and how you use that, and how you incorporate it into your your system, can be healthy. And, and I think we've done that. Our GM, Travis Schlenk, we have a you know an analytics department. But my philosophy has always been the data should confirm what the eyes tell you. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's certain things in basketball that are still hard to quantify. So to me, it's a complementary piece to fielding a team and, and, and attempting to have success. You know, I, I, I'm the managing director of USA Basketball. And I, you know, I, I will, you know, handpick the, the men's national team for the World Cup next summer and the Olympics uh, in 2024 in Paris. I also assembled the coaching staff as well. You know, we have data. You know, we understand to keep up that that's a, a tool you want to have in your toolkit. I just worry when it becomes the end-all be-all, you know, it's still a game, there's still feel to it, there's still things that I think the numbers don't always support, and as long as we don't lose sight of that, I think it's something that we can use, and we do use with the Hawks, and we will use with USA Basketball as well.
1: Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or a pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS, HIMS, H I M S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> yes, I definitely gonna use HIMS for now. Not that on. you need it, you're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might you might need it, who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com slash James. Can you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You know, one thing that intrigued me in your book was, you know, your relationship with your wife, Tanya. you've both been through a lot, you know, between your injuries, she, her diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, which thank God is in remission. It's hard in general for marriages to work, but you know, you both were on the road, you had your careers, basketball is very intense, traveling all over the place. And this is a cliche question. I'm almost ashamed to ask it, but like, what, what is the secret of a good marriage?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. People ask us that and, and we, you know, we we sometimes try to say something profound. And um, a, a lot of times we're just saying to ourselves, like, I don't know, we're just winging it. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's <laughs> you know, I, I think one, okay, a couple of things. One, I think what works in one relationship may or may not work in another. You know, my parents... Recently celebrated fifty year, or maybe a year ago, fifty years of marriage, and you know they have a beautiful marriage and a beautiful relationship, but their relationship is different than ours, you know, because we're different people, and and so I think, um, I, I think that's something we we always have to to factor in, um, you know, I will say with Tamia and I, I mean, we have unusual careers, you know, I'm a professional athlete, she's a recording artist, you know, and I, and I think we have found our home to be kind of our sanctuary. And even though we have these unusual careers, um, we live a pretty normal, basic life, <laughs> you know, outside of our careers. And I think we've been able to separate the two. You know, we have children who are getting older now. We, our youngest is about to be in high school. But like, when we come home, we're, we're you know, you know, we are, I feel like the, the camp director, you know, the camp counselor or the, the, the limousine, uh, the chauffeur for my children. Like our children have consumed us and, and we've enjoyed every minute of it. And I just think it gives you a balance. It gives you a balance. And so um, I even think in some ways our kids don't fully appreciate us in our careers and who we are because they just look at us as mom and dad. And so I think having family, having your children, having normalcy in your life, I think it's helped us um, keep a level head and stay somewhat sane through the craziness of our careers. Um, but it's also, I think, helps help strengthen our bond, um, you know, as a husband and wife, and as friends, you know, and and as parents. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't have some like maybe I should figure out like 10 secrets or, you know, success. Um, b- book
1: two. That's the next book. <laughs> <Yeah, one.
2: laughs> book two, book two. But yeah, I mean, I just think we, you know, you make it a priority and you try to figure out what works. And you also have to recognize that, look, we're, we're 25 years in, um, I guess 22 years will be, no, 23 years is our anniversary coming up in July that you change, you know, you grow, you evolve. Uh, you have different interests, and 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 so I think recognizing that and 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 uh, understanding that you know neither one of us is the same person that we were in our twenties, nor should we be the same person uh, in our twenties. And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we we live. Look, we have trappings of success. We have a beautiful home. We have a great lifestyle. Uh, we've been very fortunate in that regard, but we're not out here necessarily. I mean. I mean, I guess writing a book is an interesting sort of reason for writing a book. But we we enjoy, like, we enjoy our home. We, we enjoy the simplicity of it. And we enjoy the normalcy of our lives when we're at home.
1: Well, you know, now here you are almost soon to be 50 years old. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? What do you want to do?
2: <laughs> you know, I think for me, I think, you know, retirement has been interesting. I've done a lot of amazing things in retirement. I think where I failed in retirement is trying to do everything I've ever wanted to do all at once. Mm -hmm. I do have a tendency, and I think acknowledging your faults is part of fixing your faults. And so I will acknowledge that I sometimes take on more than I should. And I want to do everything. And I'm working now on trimming the fat a little bit in terms of some of my responsibilities but also having some better balance you know we've been conditioned I guess in the states we live to work mm, and whereas right. some other cultures they they work to live right and and so I think work and staying busy and a career it's like it's what validates you you know when you meet somebody, the first thing you, you know, so what do you do? You know, like it just, it's sort of, it, it defines who you are in a lot of ways and maybe in a way we've been conditioned to do that. And so I've been a little bit of a workaholic, you know, like I, I, I want to do everything and I don't know if that's wise or smart. And I also don't know if you get the best version of yourself when you overextend yourself.
1: Well, and so- you mentioned you have an interest, for instance, in, in music. So have you ever thought, okay, this is now a time to learn a new skill. I'm going to go back to those piano lessons and eventually be a a, a lounge bar piano player? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no,
1: no, that, that ship has sailed. So
2: not only do I play the piano, like I, I fool around and make music. Like I, I, you know, I, you know, I make, I have a drum machine. I can play keys. I sample You know, I I can make like R&B and even hip hop track. Like I, I, I I love doing that. I don't really have the time to do that right now. And, you know, my wife who was discovered by Quincy Jones and her first album was released on his label, you know, she would nickname me Quincy Bones. (laughs) And, uh, and, and so, um, you know, it's time consuming. I I don't have uh, illusions of brand. Like I don't, I don't. I'm not chasing a career in music, you know, not at all, but I would like to be able to have more time to learn a song. You know, I love playing the piano. I think it's relaxing, it's fun, um, but you can, you know, you. you so it's just, it's, like I said, it's finding the balance. And, and I think it's a blessing and a curse that you have a lot of interest. You know, it's, it's that you want to do a bunch of things. It's just, you know, I have some runway left in my life. I don't need to do everything right now, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm learning and trying to figure out how to do better.
1: Well, Grant Hill, author of Game, great title by the way. I'm surprised in the history of sports, no one has ever titled their book Game, which is good. So, well, somebody
2: there, there's a, a hockey player. I can't remember his name. He has a book I think called The Game.
1: That's and different from Game
2: because. But game it's different be, from Game. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: So you're right. I was surprised to know that too. So game is like, the game is a noun. Game could be like having game. So it's like uh, whatever that is, an adjective. <laughs> and uh, so it has different, di- a little more coolness to it. But but anyway, thank you for for writing the book. Thank you for coming on the podcast, putting up with my questions. And I, I really appreciate it. You're, it's a great book. And, and you, you say a lot of interesting things about your development and the, and the ups and downs and the trials along the way. And, and it was, is, it's really a compelling read and, and great to talk to you about it. So thank you.
2: Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. And, um, and I, 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 the invitation to come to a Hawks game. I'm taking you up on it. But you come in our building and you will, you will become a fan. I guarantee you that. So we'll make sure that happens next year. We have the best fan experience, in my opinion, in all the NBA. And because I broadcast games, I see all the arenas. So I can tell you that uh, objectively, or at least trying to be objective. Um, But no, we have a lot of fun. It really is a great atmosphere. We're very diverse. It's a party, you know, and, uh, you know, you look like you might enjoy a
1: party every once in a while. Every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Grant. All right. Thank you.